Welcome to the Yoga Meets Movement Science podcast. I'm Jenny Rawlings, a longtime yoga teacher and educator, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Travis Pollan, an exercise science professor and a longtime yogi himself. Together, we take a science-based look at many of the common questions, myths, and controversies that arise in the realms of yoga, movement, and fitness. Join us on this crash course where the worlds of yoga and movement science collide. Welcome to our episode today. Our topic of focus for today is two specific yoga poses, two specific yoga inversions to be more precise, shoulder stand and headstand. And these are only two of like the greater assortment of inversions that one can practice in yoga, but we really wanted to pull these two out just to specifically focus on in this episode. And one of the reasons that we wanted to focus on these two is that uh, you, our listeners may be familiar with the fact that in the yoga world in general, there's just kind of like a saying or an overarching belief uh, or a phrase that headstand and shoulder stand are, quote, the king and queen of all yoga asanas, which is kind of, that's a pretty bold proclamation, I feel like. But it's a really common saying. I'm pretty sure most of our listeners who are in, in the yoga world are familiar with that. And of course, we just like to point out that, of course, that phrasing of king and queen is very gendered. And we're definitely aware of that. But at the same time, most of us know that those are the, those are the terms that do tend to be used. And the, um, you know, I guess the implication is that in a headstand is the king and shoulder stand is the queen. So the implication is headstand is, I don't know, the best, the number one, the most important, something like that. Shoulder stand being like right there below headstand and then everything else below them. So anyway, that's one way of looking at these two. They're the king and queen. They're up at the top. Um, but then there's this flip side point of view on these two yoga asanas, which is that um, I feel like I've observed in the yoga world a trend toward many yoga teachers specifically going out of their way not to teach these two specific yoga inversions. And uh, in some yoga studios, they're both actually like kind of banned yoga poses. Like they're, they're like rules sometimes in some places that wow. teachers are not allowed. Yeah, it's kind of a thing not allowed to teach these two, just specifically these two, like they're not allowed um, to be taught in yoga classes. And there's kind of this prevailing belief that both of these poses, headstand and shoulder stand, are just inherently unsafe or dangerous or injurious, specifically for the head and the neck region. So that's my impression of why, what's kind of motivating that side of things. So kind of within that that whole spectrum of these two poses are the the most important and the king and queen versus these two poses are super dangerous and we shouldn't be teaching them at all or practicing them at all. Like, is there is there some something in between or is there more nuance there in how we might take a look at these poses? So that's kind of why we're here today is uh, just to examine, you know, some common claims we tend to hear about them, look at perhaps uh, whether or how safe or unsafe they might be, and also take a look at some p possible benefits that these poses may have to offer. Maybe they offer some, who knows? 
So Travis. We'll find out. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. We'll see what comes. Uh, Travis, you're familiar with these two poses. You practiced them before in your yoga practice, right? Yeah, I have. And maybe not lately in, in you know, the classes that I've taken, but mm-hmm. certainly when I was practicing yoga as like a recovery strategy for swimming in my teens, I, I definitely remember maybe more so shoulder stand than headstand. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because maybe the technical demand of it is a little bit less, but we certainly did shoulder stand and I enjoyed shoulder stand. Like, like that might've been a pose that was in every class. It was yeah. kind of like in that teacher's arsenal mm-hmm. or, or usual routine. Totally. I think that's a really common experience. I, uh, like in, in traditional yoga class settings and many of them shoulder stand and I'd suggest headstand as far as like, as long as there were students in the class who were, you know, able to, or if that was part of like the quote level of the class to be appropriate. Yeah. But I think both of those are pretty classic poses that are included in many traditional. Yeah. I don't, I don't think in that class we were doing any sort of handstand, headstand, uh, forearm balance sort of thing. It just wasn't that kind of party, but shoulder stand was absolutely in there. Oh, that's interesting. So those other inversions that you mentioned, they weren't really part of the party, but even though those inversions weren't the focus, they would still include shoulder stand. They would include yeah. that. Inversion. So maybe this teacher wasn't aware that headstand <laughs> is the king. <laughs> it was depriving you. It yeah. was depriving you of like this essential pose. It's really funny. Well, um, you mentioned handstand and forearm balance, and I'm glad you did because I was, I was also thinking we might want to just kind of start off by making sure um, the two of us and all of our listeners are on the same page about just what all of these most common inversions are. I think that's good because I don't know how recently I found out that forearm balance and headstand Mm. were not not the same pose maybe, (laughs) which is embarrassing, I I guess to say, but it's not embarrassing. You're not alone. I, because forearm balance is really challenging for me to get my head off the mat, uh, I just naively looked at those two and maybe oh, thought they were variations on the same theme. I don't know. Now it's so obvious to me now, like, well, your head's on the mat in the one, it's not <laughs> on there in the other. Um, but again, it's, it's very challenging for me to get my head off in forearm balance. But I just have to mention, you have made some amazing progress in your forearm balance. Well, thank you. Yeah. And uh, like in our Strength for Yoga program, that was a forearm balance, Pinchamayarasana, that's the Sanskrit term, was a was a monthly focus of ours uh, in March, I think it was. Mm-hmm. And uh, the whole idea was just you had to build strength to support uh, forearm balance so people could find more ease. And yeah, our, our members inspired me to... Mm-hmm. Give it a whirl and get get it on video, and so and I it. discovered that I had made some progress in yeah, that you, department. It was really beautiful. Your four about. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. So anyway, anyway, uh, maybe we could just quickly talk about these kind of four common inversions: handstand, forearm balance, headstand, and shoulder stand. So those four. There's also legs up the wall, which is Viparita Karani. That's kind of a fifth. There's that. What too. is that? What is that? Yeah. <laughs> um, that's like you're at, you're um, you're lying at the wall with like your hips either touching the wall or maybe a few inches from the wall. Your legs are up the wall, and they're so it's like a wall. supported shoulder stand. Yeah, except that you're not up on your shoulder; like your whole back and your hips are on the floor. 
Whereas shoulder stand, everything oh, you only oh, oh just just lying on your back with your with your legs up. That's exactly okay. yes, and you could do it at I the wall. That's yeah. I didn't know that was a yoga pose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's called Viparita Karate, and it's super related. I'd say it has some overlap with shoulder stand, um, but it's not shoulder stand. It's different. You can not also do it. Right, right, right. Uh, sort of. I guess you're you're sort of you get into that in order. It's a precursor mm-hmm. to sh- mm-hmm. okay. It's often offered as a regression, like a, an alter alternate to shoulder stand. If someone doesn't want to do shoulder stand, they can just take their legs up, and it's usually at the wall. But you can also do it in the middle of your mat, like without a wall support. A little harder without the wall support, right? Yeah, then it's maybe a little more active. Yeah. I teach it sometimes, like uh, hips on a block. You know, put a block under your pelvis, ah. and then just take the legs up. And you just chill there. I could imagine chilling there. Yeah, that doesn't. When the hips are elevated, I feel like there's less work, at least in my I'm body, a, that I have to do to hold. I might have up. to try that after this. You should. It's it's really um, quote down regulating. Oh, good to know. <laughs> so anyway, that's Vibrita Karani. Um, but let's talk more about these these more common act, more active inversions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we don't have to go into much detail, really. But just so that everyone's clear, because I often find people like you already said, you kind of it's easy for you to mix two of them up. And I feel like in general, that happens a lot. Thanks for saying I'm not any more confused than the average bear. I would average bear. Yeah, I would suggest that you're not. I hear these. Yeah, that's why I wanted us to just clarify at least so that everybody knows what we're talking about. Handstand, handstand. Auto Mukha Vrikshasana, um, inverted tree pose is like the Sanskrit term. In handstand, the only parts of your body touching the floor are your hands and then everything else is up. I think we all like can picture handstand as like hands down, everything else up, mm-hmm. ideally one straight line. And then forearm balance, Panchamayarasana, is super similar to handstand, except that your forearms and your hands are on the ground, and then everything else is up, ideally as close to a straight line as possible. Would you agree? That's a description, a good description of forearm balance. Yeah, and your head, and that includes your head not being on the floor. <laughs> your head is not on the floor. And in, for most people in forearm balance, they're usually lifting their head, like they're in some cervical extension in there. They usually look like between their hands. But you can also, and I think Travis, you did this in your video oh, yeah. before, about, so you can also drop the head. So the crown of your head is facing the floor and you're actually, it's much harder. behind you, yeah. Yeah. Harder from a balance standpoint. From a balance standpoint, but a little easier as far as getting that straight line, right? Embodying a straight line. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So that's forearm balance. And then the different main difference between forearm balance and headstand, which is sheer shasana in Sanskrit, would be that, and there it's more than just this, but in headstand, your forearms, well, in most variations of headstand, it's your forearms, but there are actually many variations of headstand. Sometimes it is your hands, like in a tripod headstand, it might be your hands down. Uh-huh. But anyway, the, the classic shirshasana is forearms down and you've like interlaced your fingers or clasped your hands. And then the crown of your head is on the floor. That's like the big difference. And your your hands are cradling the head, or is that different? Well, yeah, you kind of wrap them around the back of your skull. Yeah. Like they're touching, like the back of your head and your hands are touching. Okay. So that, that, that you would call that like the quintessential. Yes, that's a perfect term for it. Yeah. Quintessential okay. headstand, shirshasana would be that, but there are many variations. But today we're mostly going to talk. I think we're just thinking about that one okay. with the forearms down. Uh, and then uh, shoulder stand. In shoulder stand, uh, we are on, we are on the back of our neck, 
or we're really at the back of our head. We may not actually be on the back of our neck, depending on um, if we've used blankets or if we've really tried to keep that cervical curve where the actually the back of the neck might curve up away from the ground. But let's say the back of the head is down and the shoulders are down and then everything else. Oh yeah, and your arms are down because your arms are behind you in shoulder extension. Sometimes your elbows are bent though, right? Yeah, and, and I- your I, hands are- Almost all. You're right. I didn't see that very clearly. Okay. You're still in shoulder extension, but mm-hmm. um, you you were like making a motion that your arms were. I was. Straight. I was. Not like that yeah. People who are listening to this could can see, see that. that. But I was like, yeah. no, that's not right. No, you're right. I was more just showing uh, shoulder extension, yeah. but then right. yeah, the elbows are bent, and your hands yeah. are on your upper back, basically your mid or your upper back, in shoulder stand. Can you picture? Upper? Okay, mid, yeah, lower? you're right. Not not upper, totally. No. Okay. I'm like, you have to have a lot of shoulder <laughs> extension for that. I think I was saying upper because it's like you're upside it's down. It's the upper so. when you're upside down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but you're totally your lo- right. There's... Lower back, farther from the, the shoulders. That's right. That's right. Floor. But upper in the sense of vertical, which is not, it's not, yeah, I didn't say it correctly. <laughs> this is inversions. We're upside down. Totally. You kind of it's have tricky. to reverse like um, how you talk about directions in the body. So those are the four. Does that make sense? Between the four. I'm all and, Okay. And hopefully our listeners are as well. In today's conversation, although handstand and forearm mounts are very interesting asanas, that's not really the focus of today. We are talking about shoulder stand and headstand. And those are the two that tend to be pulled out and often kind of banned from yoga classes or described as dangerous, mostly because they involve the head on the floor in some mm-hmm. form, either the crown of the head or the back of the head. And therefore, the idea is that that's risky for the neck. Uh, and we do, I did take a brief, uh, just like a brief look at like a summary of the scientific literature on the prevalence of yoga injuries before this episode, just to re-familiarize myself with some of the statistics on it. There's a great summary that was done on my blog by uh, Yari Karpinen. And he, uh, it was like a couple years ago, but up to that point, he did this awesome thorough summary of all the all the research that have been done on yoga injuries. And so I just reviewed that and was reminded of the fact that it appears that from a couple different uh, review papers, it appears that when it comes to yoga injuries, the three most common yoga asanas that are associated with what are called in these papers, adverse events, Mm -hmm. right, Travis? Adverse Mm -hmm. events. Uh, The top three poses associated with those are headstand, shoulder stand, and handstand have to point out the handstand is actually included in that, even though that one is not necessarily banned from classes the way the other two are. Interesting. Yeah. And it is also interesting because these are adverse events, which is a bit of a general term. And what I did read was that like, for example, with headstand and shoulder stand, some of those adverse events had to do with like glaucoma and uh, that's like an eye, eye pressure issue. And so that would be included in a, an adverse event, but that's not necessarily the same as like a musculoskeletal injury, mm, right? which is what I think a lot of people are thinking about when they're thinking about the dangers, you know, of these poses. Yeah. So it might not be quite fair mm-hmm. if glaucoma is not a cause of concern for you. The fact right. that that's being lumped in to this, you know, if you're worried about the musculoskeletal side of things and that's just, right. just know that, that those numbers, however many issues there are, they're Mm -hmm. they're also being included in this tally. Precisely. And uh, when it came down to an average of the number of injuries, 
uh, and I know that that um, injury prevalence is um, can be quoted or stated in different ways. And you totally know this because you're you're um, an expert on it. But what I did see was that it was stated that on average, for every one thousand hours of yoga practice, mm-hmm. an Ashtanga yoga practitioner, and we should note that Ashtanga is the pr- probably I think most of us would agree it's the most vigorous style of yoga, an Ashtanga practitioner may experience an adverse event one po- every 1.45 hours out of 1,000 hours. Uh, yeah, well, 1.45 adverse events per Oh, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Hours. Yes, sorry. Totally said that wrong. Yeah, 1.45 adverse events out of 1,000 hours. And that, that, those are all the adverse events. And then of those adverse events, the top three were those three poses that you mentioned. Exactly. So basically, you're saying they're dangerous. And thanks for listening. Sign off now. Yeah. <laughs> right. Except there's always nuance, right? And like you already explained. So so maybe we should point out that 1.45 mm-hmm. adverse events per 1,000 hours is relatively low when you yes. compare to other activities oh, that people might generally that. consider to be fairly safe. You know. Yeah. Can you give a couple examples? Running or swimming or um soccer yeah yeah well okay so running running would be one where like people do it i mean maybe some people say that it's injurious and you shouldn't do it but but by and large it's generally considered like a, a safe activity like a healthy people, activity to do. yeah that, that would be recommended that people engage in and i don't know the exact statistics but generally speaking for for those sorts of recreational activities they're higher the injury rates are higher than 1.45 Maybe like two or three adverse events per 1,000 hours. Mm -hmm. When you get into those sports, soccer, football, basketball, the injury rates can be way higher than that. Right. And I I think that's interesting to point out. Yeah. So so that's – the podcast is not over because (laughs) (laughs) 1.45 adverse events is relatively low, which is to say that yoga – well – Ashtanga yoga is a relatively safe practice. And then if you think about the injury rates probably being lower in other mm-hmm. styles of practice, then this is a relatively safe exactly. activity to engage in based yeah. on those metrics, How, right. however they were defining adverse events. But again, those adverse events are usually pretty comparable. There, there, are, there are challenges with comparing across studies, but uh, I think it's we can generalize and say that that number is relatively low compared to other activities. Right, right. And I think that's a great reminder and just a good kind of foundation for setting this whole conversation. You know, I think like obviously when you engage in any physical activity, there can be a risk of of um, an injury happening for sure. And that's uh, yoga is not excluded from that. But just when mm-hmm. we to put it in perspective and look at, look at it in comparison to other physical activities. Yeah. And I, I, I always bring up, when I'm talking about injuries, it's like, look at all the bad things that can happen when you get injured. But at the same time, if you sit on the couch instead of yes. being active, yes. look at all of the benefits that you're missing out on. So we generally, it's generally agreed on that the health benefits um, from a, a reduction in chronic disease to longevity yes. of life, that the, those con- benefits. health. Yeah. And as, social as perks age. and all the all of yeah. those benefits generally are considered to outweigh the adverse events and which is why we 
continue to engage in physical activity, but it, it's not to say that physical activity is not without risk, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but some activities are relatively safer or more risky or less risky. Mm -hmm. Like there's like a comparison. Yeah, totally. Thank you for making that great point too. I think it's easy to get a little out of person, like forget about perspective when we're talking about us and I just see it a lot in yoga, you know, like that's super dangerous, but it's like, well, in a bigger picture, is it more dangerous to do Ashtanga, a super vigorous style? Um, or is it more dangerous to sit on your couch and be sedentary and like not move like your whole, you know, yeah, so, and not challenge your body. I don't know. So yeah, it's just kind of putting that bigger picture out there. Uh, but anyway, maybe we could turn our attention now a little more specifically to this uh, so-called king and queen of, of yoga poses. And we were thinking we could start by looking, we'd, we'll look at headstand, Shirshasana first, talk about it, and then we'll shift gears and talk about shoulder Because it's the king. Yeah, it's number one. So it must come as number one, right? Um, yes, it is the king, which is super gendered language too, but, uh, it's just, it's just the way, the language that is used in the yoga world. So headstand is the king. And that means that some people really put it up on a pedestal and then some people it's like the opposite and they, you know, believe it's really injurious and shouldn't be practiced or taught. So maybe we could start off by just talking a bit. I know we've already outlined like what headstand looks like. But maybe just a little more anatomically, biomechanically, kind of break down mm -hmm. like what's going on in the body in, in, in that sense in headstand, Shirshasana. Mm -hmm. uh, so that would be if you've got your arms overhead and your forearms down, then mm -hmm. your shoulders are in shoulder flexion, right? Which yep. that's the direction of motion when the arms go overhead. Yep. So Not maximal shoulder flexion. Well, mm -hmm. for most people, probably. But right for most people, are, probably I would still say the arms are overhead. Yeah, the arms are overhead, but like a more maximal shoulder flexion would be like handstand or something. Like you kind yeah. of picture the difference between those two. So people probably aren't. If people are arguing about the safety of handstand, they might be worried about the shoulders. But I bet they're not too worried about the shoulders and headstand. I think you're. I tend not to hear too much. Yeah, concern about shoulders and headstand. That's a really good point. Yeah, so it's an overhead pose and you're bearing weight on your arms and your upper body in an overhead position. Uh, what else is going on? Uh, the I, I would suggest that we've got some anterior core work going on in, in um, headstand because often when we go into the arms overhead position, that sometimes kind of wants to pull the spine along into a bit of a back bend. But to really find that, that quote, straight line and an inversion, we, we kind of work against that by generally working through the anterior core, like the abdominals to kind of pull in and find more of that, that straight line. So would you say the core, I mean, probably 360 degrees all the way around, like it's all activated. Mm -hmm. Look, and then there are other advocates for intentionally engaging your glutes in all oh, of yeah. these inversions too, so... That's right. I would, yeah, I would say 360 degrees of engagement through the mm -hmm. trunk. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So headstand, like to do it maybe, quote, well, would require, would you say, some like overhead shoulder strength, like upper body strength? Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? 
And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG. And we are the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose so. I thought about it. Well, <laughs> uh, well, maybe this gets into the elephant in the room. Elephant that, in the room. <laughs> well, you're you're anatomically taking a lot of load into cervical compression. Mm. Yes, yes, compression. So if you there's some load being there's a good amount of load going through the crown of your head. And yeah. then there's some load going through the forearms into the shoulders, right? So the more maybe that you can press through the arms, the mm-hmm. less directly you're loading through that neck compression. And maybe that's uh, a cue that's given? Yes, it okay. is in my experience. Yes. And so if you if you don't have a lot of strength yeah. into in, you know, pushing the floor away with the shoulders, then you are putting more load through the head because those are the only three things, Mm -hmm. two arms and one head that are (laughs) forming that tripod base. That is a great, great to point out. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for saying that. And I do find that that's a very common cue uh, in instruction given when headstand is taught, like in the settings where it's not banned. I find that that it's often cued like um, the crown of the head should barely be touching. Like it is touching, but it's Oh, shoot. Like it's really like only the arms, maybe, I don't even know if someone says a percent, 5%, 10% on the head, like it should be hardly. Well, I've been doing it wrong. (laughs) (laughs) I bet most people do because that's real. Well, most that's really hard. Mm-hmm. And I know nobody has the bathroom scale out underneath the head saying, <laughs> to really like measure yeah, it. You weigh 150 pounds. So that's your 16 pounds on the scale on your head. You got to pull that. Right, out. right. The percentages. Yeah. Um, one could, but so that's, um, that's you, interesting to know. You bear more. Yeah. And I also think it's interesting to know, I, I don't tend to hear this discussed too much in the yoga world, but other variations of headstand that are not the quintessential one we've been talking about with the the fingers interlaced and the forearms down. So for example, tripod headstand. Do you know what that one is, Travis? In a tripod? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can show you a picture, but basically it's just like the hands are down, the elbows are bent. Oh, oh, I know. You have a you have a picture of that from your Ashtanga days. You're totally yeah, it's in our book, yeah. isn't it? It's in, I, I think, think it's it in is. our strength training yeah. for yoga book. Good yeah. memory. That's right. I think it's tri I think I'm doing tripod headstand and I think my legs are in lotus and then they're full my yeah. Anyway, I don't know, but it is a tripod headstand. Tripod meaning that the foundation is the two hands on the crown of the head. Yeah, people will go back and forth between. Oh, but yeah, you can totally do that. Like like between variations of headstand while yeah. you're up in headstand is out. Yeah. Yes, you can yeah. totally do that. Um, you That's can be fancy. in headstand and move your arms all around and change all that. In um, Ashtanga, as we we mentioned that style earlier. In second series of Ashtanga, there's a segment where there's seven headstands done in a row. So seven different variations and you come up and you hold it. I want to say like five breaths or something. And then from wherever, whatever variation the arms were in, you switch them to tripod and then you drop down into Chaturanga from there. 
Damn. Were you going to say that in tripod headstand, you are not cautioned against only yeah. putting 10% into because the Because how could you? Like, how could mechanically, could you do that? I guess maybe I guess you not. could. If it's only your hands and you're in that position of elbows at 90, That'd be really don't tough. you think it necessitates that you have to have a lot more weight in your I head? I do think in so. In that truck. But, but we don't. Yeah, I tend not to hear language around that in that because I don't think you can do it. Okay. But then how important is it if, if it's not cautioned in tripod headstand and we're bearing more weight naturally, how important is it that we are literally at like 90% in the arms and 10% in the head in regular Shoshasana? I guess that kind of leads us to talk a little bit about just the neck in general. Yeah. And you know how um, common language we tend to hear about the area of the neck and whether it's super delicate or whether it's super robust or whether it's somewhere in the middle and does it change depending on how we've loaded the neck and you know like i don't know what do you think about that travis just a quick moment to interject and to thank you for listening to this episode of the yoga meets movement science podcast as you can probably tell from this conversation about yoga inversions travis and i value taking an evidence-based approach to the body and movement which means incorporating insights from scientific research into our practice and teachings. We channel our understanding of movement science into our Strength for Yoga remote group training offering, which is a monthly strength program we created to make strength training accessible and relevant for yogis. Our program empowers yogis in both their yoga practice and their whole life in general. Our Strength for Yoga program also comes with unlimited access to my full yoga class library. Use code PODCAST30 for 30% off your first month in our program or your first month in any other membership on my website. You can learn more and sign up at JennyRawlings.com and the link to that is in the show notes. And now back to our episode. Common language we tend to hear about the area of the neck and whether it's super delicate or whether it's super robust or whether it's somewhere in the middle and does it change depending on how we've loaded the neck and you know like i don't know what do you think about that travis i think well let me start by saying that when i was in personal training school Mm -hmm. we didn't talk about the neck Ooh, like it wasn't even a no we didn't talk about the neck we didn't talk about the feet so uh we talked about wow. muscles in between uh, <laughs> and it was just the the neck was sort of treated as outside of our scope i suppose yeah. you could say yeah and because there are delicate structures there like oh as personal trainers we don't mess with the neck but then i was exposed to some more sports performance oriented training where if you're working with let's say a soccer player or a football mm-hmm. player or a wrestler these people need really strong necks uh, for a couple reasons, one of which is to prevent or reduce your risk of concussions. From so, a head impact? Yeah. So the stronger your neck is, the better you can withstand those impacts that are somewhat inevitable in those sports and mm-hmm. the less risk you have for a concussion. So those folks really need to train their necks all the time and hard in all the directions. And that was eye-opening to me because I just had never thought about that or done any of that because I thought it was off limits. And um, I guess it's just to say that the 
Yeah, my my upbringing, you could say, was that the neck is off limits because mm -hmm. it's this delicate structure. And right. uh, I've only in the last maybe five or six years come around to even, you know, prescribing neck exercises for people that I work with or, or doing neck exercises even for myself. Yeah. And when you say neck exercises, you mean like really specifically targeted, like an exercise meant to strengthen just the neck, like not the whole body and the neck is included, right. in there, but like the neck. Yeah. Yeah. So actually out. doing um, like cervical crunches, like lying off oh, of the bench yeah. and, and tucking the head up. Uh, there, there are a million different things you can do. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Lie on and your side and do, you know, lateral flexion of the neck. Mm -hmm. Do it with weight like mm -hmm. kind of uh they had they make these uh harnesses um my my friend has one and so i played with one of those once where the the harnesses around your head and then you can hang uh a free weight from it you know five uh -huh. pounds or whatever then you can do your uh maybe extensions or and um the other thing like you can just do body weight exercises so mm -hmm. i i already mentioned like open chain neck flexion oh, right. like neck sit-ups but you can do planks. Like if you could put a yoga block against a wall. Like if imagine you were doing a incline push up on the wall, you mm -hmm. could put a yoga block at eye level and oh, plank yeah, into the wall with your head. That's uh, and right. You feel like this whole anterior really chain good. from the neck through the abs. So when you say that, you mean you're doing plank at the wall with your head on the block, but your hands are not on the wall, right? Yeah. So it's like just your head is like supporting you from the top. Right, right, right. So, so yeah, so there are a lot of ways. And also I think we know in um, like physical therapy or physiotherapy settings, often like neck strengthening is often prescribed when people have chronic neck pain. Yeah. And they're sure. like, they, they can use bands. You could do isometric, oh, like yeah, put yeah, your yeah. hand, put your hand yeah. on your forehead and push into your hand, you know, that kind of stuff. Totally. totally. So there's really a lot you could do. Yeah. And I just think it's interesting, like all like the equipment you mentioned and the exercises you mentioned for like people in those specific sports settings, like you wouldn't really I can't picture seeing any of those types of neck strengthening um, pieces of equipment in like a normal gym, like a commercial gym. Like you just don't see that stuff there. Yeah, it's mm -hmm. very specialized. I think people don't, specialized, right? People don't realize or see the value in it. And, and maybe that's because some people are saying that it's dangerous or we yeah. shouldn't be working the neck because it's delicate or I've heard whatever like, else there's there's there could be many reasons totally I I tend to hear at least in the yoga world a lot of language around the neck as being delicate like you said as being like um I think I've heard people call it like bird vertebrae like the vertebrae are so delicate that it's like as though you have I don't know this is it's just a comparison that I've heard that mm -hmm. I remember at the time before I knew more about the body I was like whoa I shouldn't load my neck at all it's so that would be so dangerous for my bird vertebrae. But I think we, you know, I mean, the neck is an extension of the spine, right? I mean, the cervical spine, often when we talk about the spine, we tend to think of like the lumbar and the thoracic, the low back and the um, upper and mid back. Mm -hmm. but, but sometimes I think we overlook a bit that the cervical spine is the next one. And that's also a part of the spine, which, you know, if you're going to define we talked about in our core, our episode on the core, we talked about like what constitutes the core. And if, if you kind of think of it as just everything around the spine or the torso, that would include the neck, right? And if you're gonna strengthen the core, could the neck be kind of considered that like, like really part of core strengthening? Yeah, and especially when you think about those planks, 
Like you can work the entire, yes, the whole chain from the top down in one position. It's very integrated. Mm -hmm. Totally. That's all. Which, yeah, yeah. yeah that like plank, so plank with your forehead on the, on mm-hmm. a block on the wall or whatever it is, which is really cool. Anyway, so it does sound like, despite the fact that this area seems to not be discussed in like just general discussions or thought of as an area that you could target for strength, you actually can target it for strength, right? And maybe you and, should. And maybe you should. Certain totally. people definitely should, and maybe everybody should. Right, right. And so if we know that it's an area that just like the whole rest of the spine and the core is composed of tissues that um, respond when loaded, and if loaded the right amount, they should respond by um, by growing stronger to continue mm-hmm. to withstand those loads. So basically, if we load the neck in an intelligent and like a progressive way, shouldn't the neck just grow stronger over time? And I can't I can't personally think of a drawback to that, like why you wouldn't really want to do that. I mean, unless someone had an acute injury in the neck or something, but right but just in general for healthy populations yeah it's it's like why are we afraid of this yes, oh because there are, are like afraid? sensitive structures that go through it we'll just like don't be a dodo yeah and don't sensitive structures go through the whole spine don't be a dodo. yeah i mean the spinal cord runs up and on the entire spine it's not just the neck so, um all the nerves that branch out to you know it's like um like why do we pull it out and just make it this one one part of the body that's just either we block out and we don't uh, we don't address or we kind of fear monger around it. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, so I think that is interesting. And I think that that um, gets brought into a lot of the discussions around headstand being inherently dangerous. So I guess I guess with that said, I mean, we know that when we load areas of the body, uh, the body grows stronger. So do you think, Travis, that it could be suggested that like loading the neck through headstand regressions and headstand prep poses like for sure i'm i'm not suggesting like just throwing someone who has never done headstand before all the way up into a head like no it's all about intelligent over time progress progressively Mm -hmm. but do you think loading the neck with headstand um uh, prep and regressions to build up to a headstand do you think that could make the neck stronger and better able to hold load in a headstand i think so i think that uh it, it like maybe we could talk more about what those progressions would look like mm-hmm. because my mm-hmm. what what my be, because it is we know it not that yoga is highly injurious but it is one of the more common causes of yoga injuries right headstand so yeah, yeah it, it might be the case that you do want to do some unrelated neck strengthening exercises like lower load mm-hmm. before working into these progressions but maybe you can think of some very gentle like like the the progression that i think of is having uh like doing a headstand split is that what you mm-hmm. would call it where one leg is up to the ceiling but then one leg is down yeah so everything is set up for headstand but you lift one leg is that yeah yeah like actually that? i guess that would be the second stage where the first stage was just Everything is set up for handstand. Yeah. And you have both legs down. So now that's like half of, uh, what, what weight would be going into the Mm -hmm. the head, but it it goes back to that thing of, well, if you're truly only putting 10% into through your head, then that's really not that much. Right. Right. If you're Um, truly going to do that. But I kind of get the sense that most people are not, uh, I agree. I think then the question is, well, how. Maybe you have to be really strong through your shoulders to make sure that you can 
put, you know, you can try to offload the head somewhat or maybe both. So you could either be really strong through your shoulders. So you're only putting 10% through. You mm -hmm. could be uh, really strong through your neck so that you're, you're, you know, you've, you've built up all the muscles uh, around the neck to be super ready to take that compression load, even if it is more than 10%. Or you could just be gen generally strong yes, through your shoulders and your head mm -hmm. uh, so that whatever happens when you're up there, you're good. And that's actually probably the best answer, yeah, I think. I right? Really so like, like whatever happens, uh, yeah, if, you're prepared if something all goes around. wrong, yeah. Uh, and you have to take more than 10% through your head, which I bet most people will, you're just ready. Um, mm -hmm. but I, I think that, so that, I guess it gets to the question of, okay, if your beginning progression is both legs down, mm -hmm. how much load is really going through your neck and are most people, could most people tolerate that without an issue from day one of a movement practice? Or are there certain things you would say, well, we want to make sure that you are a little bit stronger in the neck, even before we start the progression to headstand. That is a really good question. And I, to me, for me, I feel like it would just kind of depend on the student. Like, who is your student base? What type of class, what type of population yeah. are you teaching? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to say that I think for most general healthy people who are maybe not like uh, seniors, you know, mm -hmm. I, I would, my intuition would be that I would think that headstand prep where you've got the forearms down, the crown of the head down, and both feet down. I would think the neck should be, I mean, that the neck holds your head up all day, you know, and moves right. your, your head around. And I know that, that that's more weight, but you also have your arms down to help. So um, I would, th I would imagine that would be relatively safe for most healthy yoga practitioners to do that. Not most healthy yoga practitioner adults, as opposed to, Seniors. would you be more cautious? Yeah. People over whatever. 65. I think I would be more cautious with people who are, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, so I actually, maybe, actually, maybe not even 65, maybe that's maybe people over the age of 50. I don't know. Like if I you've never know. done, if you've never done yoga, it's hard to say. It depends, right? Like if someone's a strong person who, you know, how fit are they? Yeah. You kind of have to taking all these factors into account. It's, it's tough though, in a room full of people, because then you haven't been able to assess all of those things. And I know. You have a range of ages and all that. So maybe we should just ban it. <laughs> it's just easier that way, right? You're so well. That, that, honestly, that's probably the that's probably mm -hmm. exactly the conversation that goes on. Well, should we just ban it? Well, it would be easier that way, and then we don't have to strengthen our necks. And then we don't have exactly. to qualify people or, or progress people in any way. Um, so that, that's, that's right. Probably, that's like I would imagine the conversation that goes down. I think you're totally right. Um, part of, I think it's that, I think it's that combined with maybe some just extra ideas about like maybe not super supported ideas that the neck is super delicate. Like people thinking it's more delicate than it is. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. When you, when you couple that, like, oh, yes. it's hard to know, it's hard to qualify that with, oh, well, the neck's really not meant to bear these loads mm -hmm. and it can't tolerate that. It's like, no, you can you can build up to tolerating these things. Something you pointed out actually when we talked about this was that um, as far as uh, bearing load on the neck, like you were talking about people carrying weight on their heads. That's the thing that always I come back to, like uh, in not necessarily in our country, but I, mm -hmm. I've seen, especially mm -hmm. maybe in African countries, mm -hmm. I believe so. They will carry 
what look like very heavy loads on their heads. Uh, I don't know if it's water or what it is, just these big baskets. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, if they can do that, then shouldn't we be able to (laughs) stand on our heads for 30 seconds? Right, right, Or not even that, but if they can build up to that, then clearly the neck has capacity or, you know, it's it's within the realm of possibility that your neck can get stronger in compression. I think you're totally right. And really, if you think about it, like how adaptive, evolutionarily speaking, how adaptive would it be if our necks were really that delicate when really what's on top of the neck? What's the neck supporting? It's like our skull with our brain inside and our brain is, you know, arguably the most important organ in the body running everything. So it just doesn't seem super adaptive that we would have evolved like super super delicate bird vertebrae type necks or something to support the most important organ on the head. So that's even at baseline without strengthening the neck, you know, just like in general. Yeah. Well, we know that the head, like you mentioned earlier, the head actually weighs quite a bit. So Mm -hmm. the neck extensor muscles just to keep your head up all day are actually quite strong and quite, uh, have quite good stamina. Exactly. I think you're totally right. And if you think about that, all the yoga classes out there where where the teachers are not on this side of the spectrum that is like, we should ban these poses, but where they're on maybe the other side of the spectrum, or at least maybe they don't revere them, but they just don't ban them. Think about all the people in those classes who practice those headstands like really regularly, since it is such a common pose, or in the Ashtanga context, that second series that has seven of them in a row, every time you practice the series you're doing, all seven. And then I think at the end, you still do a more sustained one at the end. So it's just like, And those people aren't necessarily doing isolated neck work like we've talked about, you know, in order to prep. They've just done their yoga practice and they're like maybe strong vinyasas and other things to kind of build overall strength. Maybe for those people, maybe it's enough. Maybe that's okay. Yeah. I don't know. In those contexts. So if you wanted to be super uh, or on the side of caution, then maybe you work on some 360 degree neck strengthening Mm -hmm. beforehand. But maybe we have examples of people who have not mm-hmm. gone through the trouble of doing that outside of their normal ashtanga practice and are just fine right i think we do have lots of examples of that but you know i mean things can happen and it is that 1.45 adverse events every 1000 hours you know i mean it is there it's not to say that things can't happen and of course if someone's not prepared and you throw them up into a headstand that's a bad yeah. idea i think that's really what it is right and then yeah, the the preparation, there is more preparation for headstand than there is for uh, some other poses that don't mm-hmm. rank in the top three for, uh, oh, uh, for... As, as far as adverse events go, right? Yeah. So, but it's, it's not a black and white, like, oh, we should ban it because it's guaranteed to be dangerous. It's just like, yeah, this, this is a more dangerous or more mm-hmm. risky thing. So be smart. Right. Be smart. Be smart. Exactly. I think another point about headstand that we wanted to address today, which is aside from questions of it being inherently injurious, but I think this is more along the lines of headstand is the king of all asanas. There's this widespread claim, and I'm pretty sure almost all of our listeners have heard it, but this claim that when you do headstand, you send more blood to your brain. And that that's like a really good thing. And that's one of the major benefits. That's like partly why headstand is the king of asanas. Have you heard that claim before, Travis? Uh, yeah, I I think so. Like when you in any inversion, 
wouldn't that be the the claim that you're sending more blood flow to the brain? I think it or... would be. Okay. But I think for some reason it's stated much more often about gotcha. headstand. I think maybe because like um, in any inversion, yes. But in headstand, that's the one where you're um, where your head is just in line with the horse of your spine and you're completely, you know, upright, but upside down upright versus mm -hmm. like shoulder stand, you're in shoulder, uh, you're in shoulder flexion. And I guess a more forearm balance and handstand. But even with those, first of all, we don't tend to hold those as long as headstand generally, mm. generally. And in those two handstand and forearm balance, generally you're in cervical extension, looking down at the floor. I mean, you can do the drop pad thing and then there's <laughs> that, like you. <laughs> Right. But I think right, that right. neck position, I guess the, what I'm trying to say is headstand is the only one that most often has the neck in neutral. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. So the perfect opportunity for the blood to flow to the brain. Straight down to the brain. Right, right. So that's a super common claim and a justification for like why this is an, almost an essential pose that everyone should do every day. These are the kinds of claims that I do tend mm -hmm, to hear mm -hmm. out there in the yoga world. But you don't buy it. <laughs> I don't bite, you know, I, um, I don't know that I would have thought very much about it, uh, but I do know now that there was a research study that was done on this exact question. And these researchers looked at a, a group of people doing headstand and they measured, literally measured their blood flow going literally to their brain through their internal carotid, uh, carotid artery. So they measured that. And what they found was that when people went into headstand, not only does more brain not go to the head, but actually blood flow to, um, or sorry, to the brain, I should say. Not only does not more blood flow go to the brain, but blood flow reduces to the brain when people are in headstand. It reduces, which seems kind of crazy, but it's because of there's, uh, there's this process in the body called cerebral autoregulation. So cerebral is like the head and autoregulation is like self-regulating, like self taking care of or something. And basically uh, our brain and the cavity that the brain sits in is kind of under this like self-contained regulation process that works all the time to keep blood flow and pressure um, surrounding the brain just uh, stable, to, regardless of your body position and regardless of like systemic blood pressure and everything else going on in the body. It works to keep um, all, the, all those forces and the blood flow uh, around the brain because it's such a delicate and important structure. It keeps everything super stable. And so because of cerebral autoregulation, if you change your body position, and we can even think about like, I, I well, after I read this study, I was thinking about like, when we lie down to sleep at night, do we think, you know, that more blood pools at the back of our skull or the back of the brain, or if we lie on our side, do we think of more blood pooling on that side of the brain that's down? Mm -hmm. Like, I think we would, if we were asked, maybe we'd be like, yeah, I guess it works that way. But actually, when you learn about cerebral autoregulation, I don't know much about it at all, but just that it's this process that keeps everything super stable, uh, regardless of position, and, and that you would need that process in order to keep everything like healthy and all the neurons throughout your whole brain, like nourished. Uh, via blood, like in this constant manner. So, uh, so what that means is when we go into headstand, we don't send more blood flow to the brain. And these researchers who conducted the study, they actually found it was a study on 20 subjects. They actually found that three of the 20 subjects, when they went into headstand, they felt they actually felt more pressure in their head and they felt more pressure in their eyes. And apparently those three subjects, so this minority of them, they felt those symptoms and they actually 
didn't have the proper mechanism of cerebral autoregulation happening. And that actually literally was sending more blood flow up to the brain. And the researchers suggested that for people like that, if you feel those symptoms when you're in headstand, you'd be advised not to do headstand. Like you're not a good candidate. Perfect. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. And it also just shows That's that. That's easy. self selects right. right up. So if you feel extra pressure mm-hmm. when you mm-hmm. do it, don't do it. Exactly. It's not for you. It's just yeah. not a but good the, idea. Uh, you, you do feel something. You feel like a rush, mm-hmm. um, but that's more of a blood pressure thing, right? That's what I think. I think it's more of a, from being in that inverted position, yeah. then you come back up and yeah, but it doesn't mean that you had blood flow in your brain. So that's normal, but you shouldn't feel extra. You said it in, in the eyes. Yeah, it was pressure in the eyes and also that their head felt more full was what they said. That's what the people described it as. Okay, so. Yeah, yeah. And that those three people go. who said that were the three that didn't seem to have the autoregulation mechanism in 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 play in their body. So it's just, it's just kind of ironic because not only is the claim in the yoga world that headstand oh, brings good. blood flow, but that it's also good. But really, yeah. it's actually not good if blood flow, extra blood oh, flow goes to your brain. That's. It's not a good idea. That's deep. Right. And um, I also, I got the impression from the tone in which the researchers wrote this article, it seemed like they were just kind of frustrated by all, by this common claim they heard out there because they know, you know, physiology and uh, the, the hemodynamics of the circulatory system. And they know we have cerebral autoregulation that's been shown in a lot of other studies that regardless of body position, it stays stable up there. So they, I think they went out of their way to do this study just to kind of prove you know, to actually, let's literally measure this in these subjects so we could tell everyone, like, it doesn't happen. Stop saying it. Because that's how they wrote it. They were just like, this proves what auto- cerebral autoregulation already suggests and what you would already think. Yeah, yeah, this yeah. This study just, like, shows that. So then if you're not getting more blood to the brain, why bother? <laughs> that's such a good, like, why do headstand? Yeah. Like, why do it? Just ban it. <laughs> I think you could say that about so many poses. If like, if a claim made about that pose that doesn't turn out to be true, might as well just never do that pose. <laughs> what, it, what, uh, I get, I mean, we've maybe danced around this, but what, what benefits are there of this pose? Mm-hmm. If not that. Uh, that's a really good question. I personally, I think, I think there are many benefits to it. I think one is simply building overhead isometric shoulder strength. And mm-hmm. neck strength, like you, I, I believe you can build strength by holding that pose isometrically, sure. of course, at the right level and in a graded manner, but mm-hmm. I think it's strengthening. So, so there's that. Uh, I think it can be on a more psychosocial level. It can be confidence building, Yeah, you know, just to know that totally. you can hold yourself. Totally. Um, and that, that might be the only inversion really people it might be the first inversion that people really are able to do. Right. That's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. if you were to think of the of the handstand and forearm balance yes. and headstand like this is the one that people would you're start totally with right. maybe and i think it, you're right I, I think that is empowering in that sense like the balance is more accessible in headstand than it is in forearm balance and handstand i totally yeah. agree and i think that's great that's like empowering and confidence building so i think there's that um what else can you think of anything else about headstand specifically i mean i think those two things are already really good but Mm-hmm. Like about headstand versus all those other inversions you could be doing. I don't know. I like it for transition for fun transitions. If you're if that's the type of thing that's in your 
practice, but like we talked about um, doing headstand with your arms in one position and then changing it, you know, maybe into tripod and then maybe you could lower your knees to your arms and then lift up into crow pose. Yeah, that's a really fun one. So there's just all these like kind of fun transitions you can do that, that require focus and control and could certainly be taught in a, in a type of yoga setting where that's appropriate, where those poses are appropriate. Yeah. Um, so it can be, it can be nice in that way. So I guess we won't ban it. (laughs) I don't think we personally would ban it. And in fact, I even have a class in my yoga class library, uh, that I call taking the fear out of headstand. And it's a class that's just, it's kind of some, it's some of the regressions we already talked about. It's a short, like 20 minute practice, but the idea is to build people's confidence in their ability and their capacity and to really build their strength on a physical level to do, to do headstand and feel better about doing headstand. Um, and no one has to do headstand. In fact, I don't, yeah, yeah. No one has to do it, but just doing the prep poses toward it are still going to make positive change in the body. So maybe just trying to reframe a little bit about the way we approach headstand. Yeah. The, do you want to mention there was another study Oh yeah, found about people with glaucoma just as another. Absolutely. Like, yes. Yeah, so mm-hmm. another good question that comes up about headstand, although I do feel like this is all headstand is where it's talked about the most in my experience, but I think it also comes into play in other inversions, but what are the risks as far as glaucoma, which is like, which is an eye disease glaucoma. So I did find a study that was done on experienced yoga practitioners who did headstand really regularly. And this study, and again, all the studies we talk about today were including in the show notes, so you can go look at them. But what this study basically found was that it, um, there's something called intraocular pressure, which is like pressure in your eye, basically. And people, um, so I guess research has suggested that increased intraocular pressure is a risk factor for developing glaucoma. So if you just measure someone's eye pressure, just in a chronic sense, like just what's your average eye, um, internal eye pressure, if it's higher, that may indicate an increased risk of developing glaucoma. So the researchers were interested in finding out if like headstand was a position that could actually contribute to that, like if it could increase one's risk for glaucoma. So that's why they took people who were specifically, they'd been people who'd been doing headstand regularly for, I think it was a year, it was several years. And they measured their eye pressure, like before they went into headstand and then right when they got into headstand and then five minutes later, uh, and then afterwards, once they came down. And what they found was that- Hold on, they measured their eye pressure in headstand? Yeah. Yeah, they did, in in headstand. Wow. Both instantly and then like five minutes later. Yeah. In headstand. They wanted to see, because they wanted to see um, how much the eye pressure went up while in the pose. Wow. And they found. Can you imagine? I don't. I no. I can't imagine. Like I mean, you're trying to hold like all enough, that. Yeah, it's hard enough getting your eyes. Yeah. Examined at the eye doctor in, in the chair. Yeah, let alone. Here I, I am imagine that down. when you're upside down. I told you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's another reason they wanted to work with experienced headstand people too. Oh, yeah, like you're yeah. you're confident here. We can. Yeah, yeah that seems kind of yeah. Uh, so anyway, they found that in, intraocular pressure increased twi- twice, increased double when people were in the pose, but immediately upon coming back down, it went right back to normal. So, uh, and then what they found was that it, it just, they didn't see, they didn't see any correlation between practicing headstand and people developing higher uh, baseline levels of intraocular pressure. So the people who did headstand regularly, they didn't have um, increased uh, pressure compared to normal people. Mm-hmm. So their conclusion was that 
it didn't seem like headstand contributed to this risk factor for developing glaucoma, but they did suggest that anyone that has glaucoma or maybe has it running in their family, uh, or maybe people who are seniors and haven't been checked for glaucoma, those people may be people who, who may want to avoid headstand. Right. And actually they should. Maybe, yeah. If you have that or have a, uh, elevated risk for it, then going into headstand where the pressure is doubling just for mm -hmm. that time, maybe that isn't so good for you, even if it's going to go back down afterwards, just that exposure to high pressure. Right. Like maybe you don't need that in your life. I think that's right. But for healthy individuals, it doesn't seem to be something that, that, um, that contributes to that. So that's good to know. You know, it's always nuanced and I think there's nuance there and the yeah. way that that's looked at. All right. Um, so so we won't ban it. Yeah, I think we, yeah, I think if, if it were you and me, we probably wouldn't ban it, but we would suggest it is approached in an intelligent manner. Um, Maybe like everything else, <laughs> but just a, a little bit more. Right, right. I really like that. And um, now that we've kind of discussed headstand, we should shift and discuss shoulder stand. And I know that we're getting a little more toward the end of the time of our episode. So Not let's try fire. to hit some points. Yeah, about shoulder stand, which we've already talked about shoulder stand and shoulder stand your neck, your cervical spine is in full flexion. And then your balance, you're up there on your shoulders and then the backs of your arms. That's that's shoulder stand. Salamba Sarvangasana, that's the Sanskrit term for shoulder stand. So this is another pose that this is all, often called the queen of all yoga poses. And it's also an often banned yoga pose. It just depends like on who you're talking to. So Travis, you've heard, have you heard some of these cautions against shoulder stand? Like, are you aware of the, the issues there? Yeah, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I see, I see why they might say mm -hmm. that if you look at it and, and I, I must admit, I haven't done it lately. Um, not cause mm -hmm. I think it's bad or should be banned. It just hasn't shown up <laughs> in any of the classes that I've taken lately. Right. And I wonder if that's partly due to, I, I, I feel like there is a trend of it not being taught as often. Yeah. Maybe it's, maybe it's banned, but I didn't just, I, nobody told me, like I didn't get the memo. <laughs> Yeah. And if you're, you know, if you're just taking yoga classes and not teaching them, then you may just experience it on that end of it. Like, oh, this, this pose doesn't seem to be around as much anymore. Yeah. Shoot. Maybe I didn't, maybe just it's been banned all this time and I didn't even know. <laughs> right. Right. Well, I, I just, I wonder, but yeah, so you haven't been doing it recently. I, I don't, I haven't done it so much in the recent past, but I have done shoulder stand. I've done similar things to shoulder stand. There's a strength training exercise, and I always blank on what it's called, and you've told me before. But oh, it's the dragon you, flag. There's the yeah. dragon flag. Yeah. yeah. That's like a um, calisthenics move. But I was thinking more like where you rock up, and then you slowly lower yourself down. It's like oh, a, the reverse crunch. The reverse crunch. Exactly. Which, to yeah. me, you're, you're pretty much rocking your way up into shoulder totally. stand, and then you're lowering totally. down. Like your arms are pushing to the floor. It seems yep. similar, right? It's like a slow roll down from shoulder stand and you do it over and over. Yes. And that's called the, what did you say? The reverse curl, reverse crunch. Reverse crunch, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that's like a, a is that like more a gymnastic strength training exercise? I don't know where it is more common, but I've definitely seen it and I practiced it and I teach it in some of my classes. Yeah, I, got, I guess you could say that's like a gymnastics style. It's a body weight have exercise. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, those are some other movements that we commonly see kind of in the movement world that are that are related in a um So maybe I have done shoulder stand if you if that counts. Yeah. It's it's all contextual, right? In a yoga yeah. context, I don't think you've That's done so Salamba Sarvangasana and held it for a while. No, but I wasn't even thinking about that. Like, oh, I haven't done shoulder stand in a while, but I've done dragon flags and right. reverse crunches. So there you go. Uh, so and you look, kinda here, have... here I am. Neck is still attached. <laughs> exactly. So shoulder stand is one of these ones. I tend to find there are a lot in the in places in the yoga world where it is still taught. There is a lot of emphasis on it should only be taught and it should only be practiced on blankets. Where and I had didn't, I had never seen that before, heard that before. Yes, which is and wild. And I, I, I understand why. You know, I looked up a picture and I see. Oh, okay. Yeah, you, know, you don't need as much neck flexion for that. So exactly. So in case anyone listening doesn't know what that looks like, it's just like you stack up a num- some blankets, usually like two or three, and then you come into your shoulder stand, but your shoulders are at the edge of the blankets and then your head uh, is down on the floor. So your shoulders are up a little higher than your head. And I think the idea there is exactly as you said, it requires less shoulder flexion. So less chin all the way to chest. Less neck flexion. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. less neck flexion, less cervical spine flexion. And uh, it... Um, Keep some of the weight out of your head, I would say. I think that's part of the idea. I guess you could push your head into the floor, but I think the idea is that more of your weight goes straight down through the shoulders and less in your head. Can you see that? I have to, I'm just trying to think like what difference it would make, really. <laughs> like versus being just straight on the floor, shoulders yeah. and both. It was yeah. certainly taught to me that it was the idea was to keep the weight out of your head. But does it automatically keep the weight out of your head or, or do you have to do something different? You know what I mean? That's a really good question. I was taught to me is just kind of innately, inherently keeping the weight out of your head. But I feel like I see what you're suggesting, which is like whether your shoulders are up on the blankets or whether your shoulders are flat on the floor, you can kind of decide via how you guide the loads in your body. You can just, yeah. you can make it be they're more in my shoulders or it's more in my head and neck. Yeah. Like either way, whether it's up on the blankets or not. It doesn't matter what you, the degree of neck flexion you're in. You know, That's if your head so is a little bit more flexed on because you're on the ground or your head is a little bit more extended because you are off the ground. Either way, you can navigate where the load goes, right? Where yeah. the weight goes. That's really That's interesting. True. I don't think, I think that is not how it's often talked about. Me, the only thing that I could think of as well if you're on the ground, then like more of the flat part of the back of your head, like there's more contact area mm-hmm. than if you're more extended and then mm-hmm. like more of the tip top of your head. So yeah, the like, back of your skull only. Yeah. Just like maybe less contact, less surface area. Less surface area. Yeah. Which reminds me of another thing that is commonly claimed about shoulder stand, especially shoulder stand without blankets. So like mm-hmm. shoulders on the floor is that practicing it that way will quote reverse the cervical curve. implying reverse it like chronically, like not just while you're in the pose, but then when you come out of the pose, you're going to have a reduced. Imagine if that were real. (laughs) Right. Like how pliable our tissues would just be and our alignment would be. Yeah. It's so, yeah, but that's definitely, I mean, I read that in so many places um, when I was looking into what people say about shoulder stand in preparation for this episode. So like every that if that were the case, every time you bent over, you would just never come back from being bent over. You would just <laughs> like if you tie around. your shoes or something. Yeah, then you would just be stuck like that. 
It's so true. It's so yeah. true. Like, I think we, we need to realize, like, our, we don't just adapt completely to any shape that we hold for a little bit of time. Like, if we did, that would be so, that wouldn't be adaptive at all. Like, again, evolutionarily speaking. How much, what do, kind like, of body? how long do you have to stretch to actually make a difference in range of motion for a tissue? Yet, people say that 30 seconds in shoulder stand is going to cause Precisely. you to a hunched over neck. Yeah, yeah. It, do, it doesn't when you it doesn't make logical sense but it is claimed all the time in my experience that that's a that's why you don't want to do shoulder stand with your shoulders on the floor but i think something that um that you and i had kind of connected about regarding this is is it seems like a prerequisite for doing shoulder stand it makes sense that you would want to make sure that someone has full cervical flexion yeah you want to yeah. make sure right absolutely if so they that's, don't that's not that's not to be taken lightly. You yes. have to be able to touch your chin to your chest in standing or seated or whatever, mm -hmm. because if in an unloaded situation, because if you can't do that, then you're thrusting yourself into a range of motion that you don't have under load upside down. That's right. So that, and you could see that as being injurious. Yeah, totally. Right? Totally that just could. makes sense, right? Yeah. But if you don't have full neck flexion, then you could just elevate your shoulders on, the, on, on the blankets. blankets if yeah now, i i, I kind of feel like your your lower hanging fruit or your more important thing would let's be let's figure out why you don't have full neck flexion right. before even regressing you to the blanket to a to different the version of that yeah just feel like that'd be a little more important yeah i that's holy totally like let's let's actually unpack that a little bit and see if like someone yeah. could take mobility work or they could do something to address that mm -hmm. but i think it makes sense then that like the blanket option for shoulder stand is very legitimate uh modification for someone who doesn't have full cervical flexion then they can still yeah. do shoulder stand well and the, and the other thing that you can do is just not go into full hip extension right oh yes so you can yes. you're, you know your arms are supporting you in your low back um and you can go, I don't know. I don't know what you would call it or if there's a different name for it. I think there is. I think it's Viparita Karani. Viparita Karani is that from what I know is legs up the wall. Oh, but I think okay. that this is that might be considered a variation of it. Okay. But anyway, the point is that you're, you know, you're holding your hips up, but you're you're not going into full hip extension, like reaching the feet as high as you can. You're just kind of in like a fold. A bit yes, of a I, I can totally sort of picture what you're saying. Yeah, you're in some yeah. hip flexion. Your hips are yeah. kind of piked away from you a little bit. Right. So in doing so, now the if your head is on the floor and your torso is not all the way up, that creates less neck flexion. Mm -hmm. Thank you for pointing that out. That is so true. It, yeah. Yeah, because you're um, yeah because of the position of the spine relative to the head when you do that variation. Yeah. But again, if you don't have neck full neck flexion probably want to sort that out before yeah. even modifying your shoulder mm, stand. Mm -hmm. Like actually address address that in an isolated manner. Or, yeah. yeah. That, other times I wouldn't necessarily say that. Like if you didn't have full shoulder flexion, let's say, I would mm -hmm. say like, all right, well, you can still do some sort of like um, if you were working towards handstand, mm -hmm. maybe there's a, a – down dog or feet elevated down dog where you can just use the shoulder flexion that you have 
-hmm. but with the neck and maybe this is my biases my biases coming in yeah about the delicate neck but it just like i understand so many people don't have full shoulder flexion and it's just like uh something that you got to work on mm-hmm. but they still can do handstand I, I still feel comfortable saying okay you can still work into whatever range of motion you have there but then i'm like well with the neck if you don't have full neck flexion i feel like something's a bit more off there than if you don't have full shoulder flexion or or i i feel less confident about working around that and just giving them a modification for shoulder yeah. stand with blankets. So maybe, it- maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I defer fine. to what you think about that. <laughs> I don't know. But also maybe, like- maybe it's just like my, like you said, my, the neck is fragile and I'm, I'm like wanting to treat it more delicately than I would some other part of the body. When- if it was um, dorsiflexion at the ankle joint and someone had limited dorsiflexion, would you tell them they shouldn't squat? No, people would, but I wouldn't. Right, right. Yeah, I feel very strongly about that, that they should still squat. Mm-hmm. And they can even use the squat as a stretch. Yes, the squat should for... help improve their mobility. Yeah. Do you think shoulder stand uh, could do that? Oh, uh, it makes me nervous. <laughs> but I see the inconsistency in my logic. Travis. Like, maybe it is. I don't know. But maybe it is like a holdover of just the societal idea about the neck being this special place in the body. I don't know. I don't know. It's it's just like if you hurt your neck, that's trouble. And if you you're just like mm. if you hurt your shoulder or you hurt your ankle, it's a little bit less uh, scary really than hurting your neck. So pain in the neck is maybe more like debilitating or more of a big deal in general for someone versus uh, pain in the ankle or pain in the shoulder. Maybe is that what you're? It's, it's kind of how I, yeah. That's how I feel about it in this moment. <laughs> okay. I, I, I get that. I get I get what you're suggesting. But I do think it is interesting to maybe look at that whole blanket idea, which is often, you know, it's just like never do shoulder stand without blankets. And it's like maybe maybe we could think of blankets as like a, mo- a modification for a reduced range of motion. Yeah. But maybe it doesn't need to be. Maybe those people are saying you don't want to go into maximal neck flexion in this pose ever. Right. And I, I don't know about that. I think you're right. And I think they say that because of the, um, you're going to reverse your cervical cur- uh, curve, you know, just like these that's other, all yeah. Nonsense. Yeah. That's what I think. But just, it, it, yeah, it is, it is theoretically safer to stay out of your most extreme ranges of motion. Mm-hmm. That's, that's all. <laughs> that's the end of that thought. Uh, <laughs> but the that, body that would be like saying, yeah, that would be like saying, well, uh you should only do squats with your heels elevated because you don't want to go into your max dorsiflexion in a loaded position like that doesn't make any sense like you can build up to that over time right and build strength through that full range of motion yeah in a squat yeah yeah so maybe that's part of it is that maybe the the maybe it's fair to say well we should gradually progress from shoulders elevated shoulder stand to performing it on the mat or mm-hmm. you know flat like you i could see that like it could be um in stages let's go with like that. that could be a regression and then the one that you yeah. said which which we is like a variation of vibrio crani where like your hips are on your hands and you're kind of in hip flexion that could be a an even regression be like further back from that so like you start there then you move to blankets then you move to flat mm-hmm. on the ground mm-hmm. 
something like that. But yeah, I do think uh, that uh, uh, many of the cautions I tend to see about shoulder stand being just inherently injurious and like it'll overstretch the nuchal ligament, which is this big ligament in the neck. They don't seem very supported to me. And I think we know we can refer people to our podcast episode on stretching myths and stretching facts. We know that we don't really overstretch ligaments and make them lax via stretching. Uh, you can injure a ligament from like a high impact, like traumatic accident type thing, but not from like a slow controlled stretch in a yoga setting. So I don't think we need, I think that um, that nuchal ligament overstretching idea gets wrapped into the whole, you'll reverse your cervical curvature and, you know, those conversations. I think we can kind of just bust that myth and say that like mm -hmm. the, our tissues don't really work that way. We don't really need to worry about it, but we can still be smart with the variations that we offer for shoulder stand. Yeah. Um, I have a class in my online class library about shoulder stand that I called bringing shoulder stand back, specifically referencing the fact that I feel like it's kind of fallen out of favor or fallen out of fashion in at least some portions of the yoga world. Uh, mm -hmm. And so I just kind of wanted to encourage, you know, if you're interested in this pose, don't feel like you can't do it. But um, maybe we can just look at, you know, ways that you might build up to it and also strengthen for it. I think shoulder stand, we often underappreciate the fact that strength and control, especially in shoulder extension and thoracic extension, so like upper and mid-back strength, those really play a role in like a nice, controlled, well-executed shoulder stand. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so if you work on those, like strength in those areas and in those directions, that should help benefit your shoulder stand, make it even more solid. Yeah, definitely have more control when you're up there. Yeah, exactly. Which is why it's some that shape can be used in that like um the pose that we talked about, reverse crunch already. I don't know mm -hmm. why I have a muscle block, but anyway, it's like a similar pose and you can use that for strength. You know, we can think about how we could tie in extra strength and control to something like shoulder stand. I don't think it's thought of that way often. It's thought of more as just like this relaxing pose, but um there's ways that strength can benefit that position. So I think last thing, we've got to wrap this conversation up, but Travis, does uh, practicing shoulder stand stimulate the thyroid? What does that even mean? <laughs> I think that's the perfect response to that question. And this, this is just I... to say, this is a claim that's very widespread. And I think it's written in Iyengar's Light on Yoga, that like kind of quintessential yoga book that all. Can you, can you translate that for me? <laughs> <laughs> Not very well. I think it's just this vague sense that um, maybe similar to the idea that like you put your body in a position and just like energy and fluids move toward, you know, you go into headstand, they, we think blood flows to the brain. You go into shoulder stand, mm -hmm. you think maybe it's blood, maybe flows to the thyroid and that somehow blood there is going to quote stimulate it, which like, what does that mean? But the thyroid is an endocrine, endocrine gland, which is part of our overall endocrine system. And that system is like regulated by uh, the brain, the hippocampus in the brain. And it's just this, it's not something like we don't activate or, or unactivate endocrine gland, glands based on position of body that we're in, the position that our body is in. It's like a, it's a brain regulated thing. So it doesn't make sense physiologically that doing something like shoulder stand would quote stimulate the thyroid and why it would stimulating the thyroid even be this universal benefit for like everyone like why yeah, what about some know. people if your yeah. thyroid is down under yeah if it's like underactive but like how what percentage of the population is that and people say this as though it's like benefiting everybody it's like a medical that's like a medical issue like you need to 
yeah your doctor if that's yeah case. i don't know if it's change your diet or just general exercise in general i think can benefit the endocrine system that? in general yeah. Yeah. but like to think one yoga pose could have this like one specific effect on this organ that doesn't seem plausible that doesn't seem plausible yeah nor nor that it would even be a benefit to everyone like unless someone had a specifically underactive one but anyway <laughs> can can we with our last negative 30 seconds talk about <laughs> how plow isn't oh, yeah. something that people say you shouldn't do but plow just looks like shoulder stand to me but more thank you so much for bringing that up so what so plow pose is also called halasana that's the sanskrit term and it's basically all it is travis is shoulder stand in hip in full hip flexion with like your feet on the floor or maybe on some blocks or on a chair seat right it's like a folded mm -hmm. version of shoulder stand and I don't know about you, uh, but I, I think my, most listeners can relate to the fact that shoulder stand is much more fear mongered about than plow poses. And I have heard some people say things about plow pose, but in general, I think um, the focus is on shoulder stand. That's the band pose when people want to band. So what do you think? Try, I mean, what difference is there between those two poses as far as injury? The, the only thing that I see is that the if your feet are on the floor or a block, then you're offloading the shoulders a bit and then mm -hmm. the head. But then again, you've now moved your load distribution of your body posteriorly, which is actually yes. gonna put more load through your head. So if you, especially then if you can't actually touch the feet down, you know, you're, you're not flexible enough for that. Then, so you're hovering them in the air. Yeah. Now you're just actually putting more, more load, load through the neck. If, if that's the thing that people are worried about, why aren't they worried about it in plow? Why isn't plow one of the band poses, but shoulder yeah. stand is? Yeah. Um, I don't know. And I think it's a really good inconsistency to bring up because there tend to be a lot of inconsistencies about rules and claims just in general, but definitely in, in the yoga world. And I think that's a really good one. I'd be curious, um, even if like any of our listeners have any ideas about that, or if they do feel like plow poses as yeah. being fear mongered about a shoulder stand, but in my experience, it isn't, it doesn't held up, um, as a band, as something to put a red X on mm -hmm. as shoulder stand. So it's great to just point out that just kind of maybe biomechanically, there's not much difference, or in fact, you know, maybe there's more, more weight on the neck in plow pose because of, yeah. of the way that shifts the loads. We'll That's, have to get our bathroom scale up. Yeah, and and check the yeah how load is distributed. The the last thing maybe we should mention is and maybe we should have mentioned this earlier. There are certain, uh, but we mentioned glaucoma mm. as a mm -hmm. uh, a risk or basically uh, a contraindication. Yeah, yeah. So the other ones that we came across were hypertension or high blood pressure, mm -hmm. and then history of stroke or heart disease. That's right. Like yes, potential reasons or contraindications yeah just if you have those things maybe these poses are not right for you maybe inversions in general right that's right yes and these, since these are inversions they get included in that but yeah thank you i'm glad we we um want to wrap up with that so just yeah i mean inversions are clearly not um for everyone and for people with those conditions it's it's something that they should uh it seems like it would be advised ultimately they should check with their doctor right yeah maybe, maybe that's the thing check yeah with your doctor before before practicing headstand or shoulder stand or any of yoga's inversions in general. So that's important. I'm glad we're ending with that. And um, Travis, is there any any last thing or any last thoughts about shoulder stand and headstand? Uh, are they the king and queen of yoga asanas? I guess so. <laughs> 
Jenny, are they the king and queen of the Augustas? Yeah, I mean they are. They are if people say they are, but like yeah. I think it's just a. Should we make a new king and queen? What? Well, I feel like it would be so subjective. It's like, what are you basing it on? You know, when you hear that in the yoga world, these two are the king and queen. Like, what does that mean? We'll do crow and triangle because those are uh, in our logo, our strength for yoga logo and on the cover of our strength training for yoga book. Yeah. I can go with that. In our world, in our community, those are the, but maybe we don't have to be so gendered in the language we could say. Yeah, king, yeah, yeah. King yeah. and king or queen and queen. Perfect. The aces. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. Like a deck of cards, like a card game. They're the aces of yoga. I mean, it might as well be like that arbitrary, right? If you think about it. Yeah. So um, yeah, there's just lots of claims out there. We can always maybe dive deeper in them, into them to find more nuance, more perspective, and like a bigger picture way in which we can think about these concepts. Love it. <laughs> Thank you so much for chatting with me about shoulder stand and headstand today. Thank you, Jenny. And that wraps up our look at headstand and shoulder stand. Remember to use code podcast 30 for 30% off your first month in any of the memberships on my website, including Travis's and my strength for yoga remote group training program. You can learn more and sign up on my website, jennyrawlings.com. And the link is in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Yoga Meets Movement Science today. And if you found this discussion to be of value, we would so appreciate your support if you had time to subscribe to this podcast and to leave us a rating or a review. We look forward to seeing you in our next episode soon. Mm-hmm.